you get this immense feeling that you're witnessing something which is the very foundations of our planet. And this is what volcanoes are. They're actually creating new land. This is how our planet formed. You're hearing a travel writer named Mark Stratton watching the eruption of a volcano in La Palma in Spain's Canary Islands. Lava is pouring out of that volcano right now. It's the first volcanic eruption in La Palma since 1971 and the biggest on the island in more than 100 years. It's something which is profoundly significant and to actually get the the chance to, to experience at a close hand is something of a privilege. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. As we watch the climate shift before our eyes, this weekend we focus on the awesomeness of nature. You know, that feeling of witnessing something that astounds you? We explore how the Earth humbles us, how quick we are to ignore its messages, and how it has a knack of reminding us of its power in unignorable ways. Let's go back to Mark in La Palma. Our editor sent him there to chase a volcano, which for him was great because Mark loves volcanoes. He also visited one in Iceland earlier this year. For me, it was a no-brainer wanting to come out here, not just to do my job and report on the volcano and the impact it's having on the island, but also to indulge, I think, a passion really for seeing the um, natural world at its most visceral. Getting to La Palma was difficult. The eruption and all the ash that it caused grounded all the direct flights. So he flew to a nearby island and took a four-hour ferry. As you were on the ferry, could you see or notice hints of the volcano on the island? You know, I, I arrived really late in the evening, and I think I probably talked myself into imagining I was seeing something that actually wasn't happening. So I was probably an hour out, and you can start to see a sort of glow on the horizon. And as I got closer, I imagined I was seeing rivulets of lava flowing down the flanks of the volcano. Actually, it was streetlight. <laughs> but, but as I got close, there was most definitely this huge halo. It seemed to be hovering above Santa Cruz, and that was most definitely the cloud layer being tainted by the fireworks coming out of uh, Cumbri, the Aca, which is the volcano. The next morning, Mark met up with a tour guide named Jonas Perez, who had agreed to show him around. Here's Jonas explaining what it was like right when the volcano first erupted. We kind of started panicking because the volcano finally became active after um, almost a week of tremors. And it took us all by surprise because uh, the uh, volcano erupted in a place that nobody expected, in a place where, unfortunately, there is a lot of houses. Some houses have been taken down along the way. It was hard for Jonas to watch. So far, there haven't been any reported deaths, but homes have been destroyed, and about 6,000 of the island's residents have been evacuated. And that includes Jonas, his wife, and his two young twins. Sunday, we, uh, we left our home. We only been uh, back once to pick up a few more things that we left behind, but uh, haven't been able to do it anymore. Despite this scary disruption, even Jonas was compelled by the volcano. He said to me throughout the day, you know, this is a, an amazing event. It's a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see an erupting volcano. Yeah. But obviously for him, it had greater consequences. Can you explain what it was like to see it? So we, we met in Santa Cruz next morning. I hired a car and he warned me, it'd be like once we cross from the relatively safe western side heading over to the um, eastern coast, he said, it would be, you're, you're going to be entering hell, he said. 
And as soon as we'd gone over the divide between the island and the volcanic complex, it went from a sunny day to a shower of fine ash raining down on our car. And there was cloud and it felt more humid. It was a complete change. Remarkable, actually. We, we stopped at a church near El Paso. I got out of the car there, uh, besides getting a shower of ash. And it's a very fine ash. It gets absolutely everywhere. <laughs> it, it just gets in, completely inside your clothing. It's just hard to imagine how it does it. We got out near this church where there is a view of the volcano. And the first thing is just the noise. The noise is incredible. It's extremely loud and a phenomenal sort of grinding roar. It just sounded like a series of jet engines, a fleet of jet engines. And then what the magnet's done is it's forced its way through a weakness in the strata and it's rapidly building up a cone. What you can see during daytime is, firstly, this incredible billowing column of smoke and ash. Mm. I'm told it's reaching 5,000 feet in the air. It's sort of joining the cloud base for certain. It was dark, very, very dark. And there's jets of magma being forced out of the comb, which is building up. Mark describes the eruption in his piece. I've put it in the show notes. And you can see it in photos, too. The lava forms this deep, burnt-out gutter through the middle of fields. It cuts off the landscape very suddenly, like a postcard that's been ripped in half. We spend the whole day around getting different angles of this huge plume of ash coming out. And there's some really huge ridges of lava which is being built up. So it's continually flowing out of the crater and just making its way slowly downhill and engulfing properties. Jonas said to me that the lava in the Canaries flows like honey on a plate. You know it's moving though because you suddenly see this white flash of vapor. And that was where the lava was actually reaching swimming pools. As soon as the lava comes into contact with that, mm-hmm. you get this pure white steam as the lava falls into the, um, into the pools. The eruption is attracting a sort of pilgrimage. On average, about 50 volcanoes erupt around the world each year. And there's a cultural phenomenon that you may have heard of. It's called lava chasing or volcano chasing. Mark went to La Palma to understand that tension between volcano spectators and residents. I would love to hear about the other people who came to see the volcano. Was there um, conflict there? I think people have an idea that volcano chasers may, that they might somehow be serious geeks, dispassionate robots who are only interested in getting a photograph of what they're seeing in a video and flying drones. Apparently there are international visitors who've come here for that. I haven't actually met any yet. I have met mainly Spanish and other tourists from the other Canary Islands. They've definitely come. And they're a real mixture. I saw a family of four from Tenerife mm-hmm. Island who come over in their camper van. I met a young guy on the ferry coming over who was on his motor scooter. He wanted, he was just saying, it's a chance of a lifetime. They've always wanted mm. to see an erupting volcano. It's been pretty low key. And I, I found that when I was in Iceland as well. It's about a 45 minute walk to the crater there. I met groups of lads carrying their stereo systems and beers up to the top. People walking in flip-flops. I met an elderly couple dressed up really smartly. There was a group of school children. There is no real definition of a lava chaser, of this obsessive character. They're just people who want to reflect Mm. on the moment and see something quite special. The eruption is still in its early days. 
It could go on for months, but not everyone is enjoying it. The police are not happy, and there's accusations also that these lava chasers are getting in the way of emergency services. And I have to say, it was a little chaotic. The Icelandic government, one of the first things they did when the volcano erupted was they they actually created a car park, a huge car park, and they also created a hiking trail going up to the volcano. They were actively encouraging people. They were being very proactive in managing. Um, It's a little difficult here. This volcano is in an area where there are settlements and towns. Meanwhile, Jonas, our tour guide, he felt he couldn't return to his business of selling tours on the island while people are still losing their homes. But like Mark, his feelings are also complicated. It's an impact on the short run because basically right now we are doing nothing. There is no business going on at the moment out of, well, first of all, uh, for safety for everybody. What's your optimism for the future? Have you got any? Or? On the long run, that beast up there is, it will be a, a massive tourist attraction. Yes. Anyway, but that will be on the long run as soon as the volcano actually stop. God knows when. I was speaking to Mark while he was in his hotel room in Santa Cruz. He was ready to make the journey back to the UK, and he still had ash stuck to his clothing. You're a travel writer, a very experienced one. You've seen a lot. Have you come to any revelations <laughs> seeing seeing something like that happen? To be frank, I think we, as a species, are making a bit of a mess of the planet. And almost every aspect of the natural world is is being controlled, whether it be animal populations or draining lakes, diverting rivers, et cetera, et cetera. And there's just some things that we're not able to influence that are just so powerful, they're completely beyond us. And that immense sense of natural power and wonderment. That if I was a local person here, my house had been covered in lava, I wouldn't probably be viewing it from that perspective. But at the same, the same point, this is a spectacle to behold. It, uh, mixed emotions, definitely mixed emotions. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. And stay safe. Thank you. In my childhood home, we had this poster next to a bathroom sink. It was a stark, massive photograph of the whole Earth from space. And below it were big black letters that read, Love Your Mother. Of course, it was put up by my mother, but I was just mesmerized by it. That photo of the Earth, it just pulled you in viscerally. It was urgent. I looked it up recently, and it turns out it was printed back in 1972. It was one of the first photographs ever of the whole Earth. And it was a photo that sparked a movement. One of the first photographs of the Earth, and I can't imagine that moment when you see yourself, right, for the first time. One of the the first photographs of the Earth came in in 1968 over satellite. So it's striking, you know, that little electricity of this is where we live. And right now, if you look at the earth, I think in this specific moment of time, we see our home burning down, right? We see it laid waste to. It's overheating. There's extreme weather everywhere you speak. That's Neelanjana Roy, an author and FT columnist. We call her Neela. With the UN Climate Change Conference coming up in November, our books editors asked Neela to dig into some of the earliest writings on climate change. I went back to 1971, And that's a kind of good starting point because you're going back to 50 years earlier and half a century gives you a little bit of perspective. And um, imagine my surprise when I realized that everything that we're thinking about now was thought about then. 
Neela found three extremely prescient books published in 1971. We'd like to introduce you to them here. One of them was a publication that was inspired by and really popularized those first photos of the Earth. It's called The Whole Earth Catalog, and it was started by a guy named Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand was a little bit of a maverick and a visionary, very, very plugged into the uh, early days of the computer age. But in 68, hey, remember, I was, you know, a 29-year-old, I didn't know squat. That's Brand talking at the Long Now Foundation's Whole Earth Catalog 50th anniversary celebration. And one of the reasons I did the Whole Earth Catalog was to, you know, I was saying I'm going to help the people doing communes figure out how to do all these basics they care about. They thought you could grow a garden by just sticking a stick in the ground and throwing seeds at it. Well, I was one of those people who wanted to learn all that stuff. And so the access to tools and skills was my own desire to, to learn those things. In fact, Steve Jobs said of the Whole Earth Catalog, which was this completely marvelous, massive thing, you know, part compendium, part encyclopedia, and Steve Jobs said that it was like Google 35 years ago. In 1971, the Whole Earth Catalog carried an essay called Think Little. It was written by the American poet, novelist, and farmer, Wendell Berry. When I looked at these three books, I think I was expecting to see a little bit of a warning. I think the wisdom surprised me. You know, the fact that Wendell Berry way back then, and he's an icon. May I read out a quote from uh, Wendell Berry's essay? Because I love this quote so much. Please, yes, I would love to. I can't believe that he was uh, writing this in 1971. You know, he said, a better possibility is that the movement to preserve the environment will be seen to be, as I think it has to be, not a digression from the civil rights and peace movements, but the logical culmination of those movements. For I believe that the separation of these three problems is artificial. They have the same cause, and that is the mentality of greed and exploitation. The mentality that exploits and destroys the natural environment is the same that abuses racial and economic minorities. And I think I just wow. stopped in my tracks when I read that because I thought, what have we done in the 50 years since then, you know, except um, relied on maybe solutions that are temporary. The second book Neela returned to was a cookbook from 1971 written by a 26-year-old woman named Frances Moore LaPay. You may know it, actually. It's called Diet for a Small Planet. Two tablespoons oil for sauteing, two large onions chopped, one cup barley, five cups seasoned stock. This could be any stock that you have on hand. It was a vegetarian cookbook that went on to sell millions of copies, and it changed the way we understand food. I think I found it fascinating because I remember a copy of this sitting on my grandmother's shelves, you know, in Calcutta. Wow. So, you know, you can just imagine the distance that it's uh, traveled. And it was yeah. a battered copy of this, you know, small book that just said Diet for a Small Planet. Morla Pei recently spoke with Food Tank, a research house, in September of this year, ahead of the book's 50th anniversary. One of the highest compliments or one of the compliments that most touched me is somebody, a friend said to me, Frankie, you asked the question behind the question. Mm. And that's what I want to do. And I just, how satisfying that is. She asked a question that's so obvious that it seems uh, that somebody would have asked it before, but apparently nobody had. She said, is there really not enough food for everybody on the planet? And she came up with two astonishing facts. One was that there was enough food. And her second insight was that meat production particularly. This kind of labeled her as a crank 
but she had stumbled upon something that was seriously important and critical to the health of the planet, which is that meat costs too much to produce. What it changed is that it was accessible, right? Right. Anybody could follow it. Anybody could just start following her recipes because she wasn't preaching. She was also just offering you actually a way to live. And she was saying you have a choice. Mm. That idea that you had a choice over how you lived, it was also making its way into children's literature. Welcome to our third book, published in 1971, The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Just infamous. A story that seems innocuous on the surface, but was actually really quite radical for its time. And there's a point where the Lorax says, I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And then he says, I'm the Lorax who speaks for the trees, which you seem to be chopping as fast as you please. Here's a dramatic clip of the Lorax from a CBS educational TV special from 1972. And at that very moment, we heard a loud whack. From outside in the fields came the sickening smack of an axe on a tree. Then we saw the tree fall. The very last truffula tree of them all. The Lorax sparked a fight between environmentalists and the logging industry over deforestation that lasted for decades. So much so that in as late as 1989, there was actually a push to have it removed from school reading lists. Many who worked in the logging industry were very angry and annoyed and upset because their children Mm. were coming back home and asking them what they were doing cutting down trees. It became a huge issue, and there's a woman in the logging industry who wrote her own anti-Lorax pamphlet, cast in exactly... Wow. <laughs> it was called The Thruax. <laughs> Ridiculous. And it was 20 pages, and it had a villain who was, who was actually a little bit racist. And the villain was depicted as this brown-skinned, uh, slightly ugly creature who comes in and starts screeching at a nice logger. You know, oh my and, goodness, really? Yeah. This was in 1989? Yes, He refuses to listen to the loggers' perfectly reasonable points, which were all, of course, talking points for the hardwood industry at that point. Right. And I think, um, you know, much as we want to laugh at it, I look at it and I think, where does climate denialism come from, right? You expect it in our age. But again, this was something that surprised me, that you had this early, you know, springing up of propaganda. Neela, do you think, having been in these books over this time as you've been writing this and, and thinking about it. How has it made you feel? Does it make you feel hopeless? <laughs> Does it make you feel hopeful for where we are now? I mean, where are you sitting with it? It's remarkable how the old debates never go away, do they? They, they just keep coming back again. But at the end of this, I found myself moved, deeply moved, more than I expected to be. You know, looking back and seeing, we didn't get this way because people didn't care. I think people have actually cared about the earth for quite a long time. I don't know. I'm not a climate expert. I don't know exactly why we lost our way. But I think uh, it's for the simplest of reasons, you know. We didn't want to take action in time. You know, Mm. We didn't care enough, maybe. Neela reminded me of this line from the Lorax that reads, Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. But it is extraordinary, isn't it? And you reach back into the past and you see from 50 years ago, these voices Mm -hmm. reaching out to us saying, we are in desperate trouble. The clock is ticking. Time has almost passed. And our home is in danger. But you know what? Mm. There is hope. And here is what we can do. And there is nothing more restorative than that. 
to look back and say, oh, you know, these are not dead voices. They are what we need to hear today. There seems to be a newfound appreciation for the 70s today. Both eras are times of major transformation, and in both eras, we may need a little bit of extra comfort. I say this because it turns out, to my great joy, 70s interior design is back. It's having a resurgence. And before we go, I've called my colleague Cherish Rufus to find out why. I think like the horrible parts that immediately kind of spring to mind are kind of carpet in all the wrong places and like really lurid and almost ghastly like textures and color palettes and mustards and yellows and all of those really, really horrible things. Cherish is the FT Weekend Magazine's deputy chief sub-editor. She just wrote a piece about the best of the 70s and I've put it in the show notes. We're not talking about gross shag rugs or lava lamps or patterned couches sat in front of patterned wallpapers here. We're talking design. The photos are incredible. I think over the past couple of years, it's kind of exploded and you see it everywhere. So I don't think it ever really disappeared from culture. It just has come back with like a really, really, really crazy kind of resurgence. Cherish first noticed the resurgence when she saw the Togo sofa start to appear on accounts like Victoria Beckham's and Lenny Kravitz. You'd recognize the Togo if you saw it. It's an iconic low-seated couch, and it was launched in Paris in 1973. It looks sort of like a loosely stuffed mattress folded over onto itself. Legend actually has it that the designer, Michel Ducoroy, was inspired while standing at the sink, about to brush his teeth. The way it's described is that it looks like a toothpaste, a tube of toothpaste that was folded in on itself. <laughs> That's true. So it looks really, really odd, but it works somehow. It seems to sort of cradle a body. Yeah, it does. Exactly. Do you have a sense of um, what has made it explode the way it has? Like, why, why do we love the Togo sofa again now? I think because of the time that we're in, like we're at home or we were at home all the time. So you wanted something that was comfortable, but also fun because home had become also where you entertain and where you work, where you do everything, like um, rattan and bamboos, light pendants and shelves and plant stands, just like smaller home accessories like bar carts and mirrors, just like the shapes that were popular then have really come back. And then I think palettes as well, like not quite the mustard yellow, but those really, really like almost muted, but like earthy shades as mm. well. Mm. I think it's this idea is interesting that the 70s appeals to the current cultural sensibility because we want something comfortable. I liked your quote that actually we're coming off the back of the Scandinavian mm -hmm. minimalism trend, yeah. that this is kind of the opposite of that. Yeah, because I kind of feel like with the whole Scandi minimal thing, everything started to look the same. Mm. Whereas I think now people are kind of being encouraged to be more themselves and take more ownership of how their surroundings look, personalize it a bit more. Mm. Like there's something almost a bit homogenous about mid-century, Scandi, minimalism, clean, beige. So this has been like, for me, at least a really welcome departure from that kind of aesthetic. 
Cherish told me that designers like Jonathan Adler are also taking inspiration from the 70s. Jonathan Adler is known for his quirky ceramics. My favorite is this massive vase that's just, honestly, it's all boobs, like a hundred boobs. Something that Jonathan Adler said that stuck with me, where it's like there's bad and good, and like every era of design is just a matter of picking what you think is good and what works for you. Mm. So I think like anybody that has that image of the 70s and mind that we were talking about, like carpet and ugly for a wallpaper, <laughs> to just be a bit more open to reevaluating it. Mm. There's so much that it has to offer, like boho, but also like sleek and sexy and seductive, but also really like lush and like earthy. So mm. I feel like there's something in that era for everybody. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. This is our last week where we are collecting cultural recommendations. We've got a ton of great ones from my colleagues that we'll be putting into the next episode alongside yours. So tell me, what is one cultural thing that you've been watching, reading, listening to, eating, Googling, etc. that is fascinating you? And why is it interesting now? It can be something huge like Squid Game on Netflix, or it could be something obscure like a strange ingredient you're cooking with. Um, I spent a period of time cooking with dried limes recently, which is very fun. It could be old, like an old pop star or an old novelist you rediscovered who was ahead of their time. But let me know. You can write to me by email at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We love voice memos. So if you want to record a voice note on your phone and then email that to us, that would be amazing. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can find all of that and links to everything ever mentioned in these episodes in the show notes. There's also a really excellent special discount there specifically for you for an FT Weekend subscription, either in print or digital or both. And you can also get to that deal at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Thank you to everyone who has been sharing the show. We really appreciate it. Please do subscribe and share this with the people that you know. Please tell a few friends, put it on your Instagram stories, leave us a review on Apple. All of these things are the best ways that you can support the show if you like it. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. George Drake Jr. is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbard-Doyen are our assistant producers with special help this week from Alice Fordham. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragosa are our executive producers, and we had editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll meet here again next week. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.